And now, a word from our sponsors. Gabriella Balcom won the right to have a novel published by Clarendon House Publishing when one of her stories was voted best in the anthology in which it appeared. Her book, On the Wings of Ideas, came out following this. What's your favorite genre? Fantasy? Horror? Sci-fi? Romance? Literary fiction? This multi-genre collection of short stories includes all of that and more and has something for everyone. Gabriella's stories will alternately move you and bring you to tears, captivate or horrify you, and have you on the edge of your seat. Don't miss out. Be sure to get a copy today. Submissions are now open until August 1st for the Sweetie Cat Press Anthology, The Whole Wide World. The submissions should be episodes of no more than 3,000 words and as few as 50 words about the worldwide adventures of Detective Curly Knucklewad and his assistant, Miss Wanda Wowser, as they go on a manhunt for the unknown thief of the limp noodle sauce recipe stolen from the secret government food laboratory in San Francisco. Submission guidelines are in the blog section of the Sweetie Cat Press website at sweetiecatpress.com. That's sweetiecatpress.com. S-W-E-E-T-Y-C-A-T-P-R-E-S-S.com. Gabriella Balcom's thrilling sci-fi novella, The Return. The world doesn't know about the compound hidden underground and the wealthy investors funding it want things to stay that way. Although it's the year 2027, most of the facility's research is illegal. If animal rights activists had an inkling of what went on, they'd clamor for justice. Human rights activists would scream from the rooftops. By the time 2030 arrives, researchers have worked for a while with feline service units and human replicas. HRs, who are virtual prisoners with no rights. More and more of them are dying and they long for freedom. Surprisingly, one of the top scientists isn't happy with the status quo either. Tensions are mounting and things are not as they appear. Summertime is here, and the best way to beat the heat is with these great deals at MythMark.com. Join the adventure with sisters Emma and Olivia as they journey through the land of imagination in search of Yoon, the magical unicorn, in David K. Montoya's The Missing Unicorn and the Land of the Zombie Fairies. Or travel with poet Christopher Bice as he shares his thoughts on love, death, inspiration, and madness in Escaping the Darkness, Running from My Dreams. If fantasy romance is more your speed, join Celeste and Merrick as they figure out how to defeat the evil Ren doll while they figure out the plans of the elders in Stephanie J. Vardy's The Chosen. Like comic books? We got them too! Hot Off the Press is American Smash by Alan Russo and David K. Montoya for $4.99. Or enjoy our older releases like The Hunter's Exodus for only $2.99. Also, just in time for the summer are these other hot deals like Zoe M. Montoya's Uni Whale t-shirt, blue for boys and pink for girls, only $33.99. Or Lupus Bits the Podcast shirt for $27.99. For all our art lovers, we have something for you too with our prints and lithographs. Check out the Ed Bickford collection for $15 each or enjoy the art of Vincent May for $15. We have everything you'll need to stay inside and beat the summertime heat at MythMart.com. 
For more information, go to www.mythmart.com. Call us at 870-557-2612 or email sales at mythmart.com. And now, enjoy this free JZO Modcast show. Hey there, this is Ralph Garman, and you are listening to the World of Mythbits. You made an excellent choice. Welcome to the World of Mythbits. We are your hosts, Jenna and Joe Sparks, and this is episode 138. Welcome. Welcome to the World of Myth Bits. We don't have any housekeeping today. I'll fill you in then. We have Scarefair coming October 30th. And please visit MythMart.com for all your shopping needs. See, he's got it. He's got it. Always, let's 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 go ahead and, and assume that that is going to be the, the mandatory for the next several months. MythMart. It's right around the corner. Withstanding, yeah. It is. It's right around the corner, and it's kind of cracking me up because there there are a lot of um, horror events kind of cropping back up. It's really exciting, but I won't even lie. Like I'm, I'm still a little nervous about large gatherings, just because you know, COVID aside, I haven't been <laughs> in a large group atmosphere in like two years, and um, I I already deal enough with like social anxiety without uh, any kind of super transmissible viruses around like just socially like talking to people face to face that that's that's daunting <laughs> to me I'm so used to talking to the people in my own little circle my family you know and and trying to remind myself what's okay I guess <laughs> but yeah um I'm super excited I am be just fine butterfly I hope I hope. Uh, otherwise, I, I remember when I met our lovely Melissa Elms Ridley at PCE 2020. Does anybody else also feel like we have spanned like five years without spanning any years? Anyway, when I met her, she was like, do you have any advice uh, for for like what I can do? Because she kind of, you know, was, was dealing with the same thing as I do and was where it's kind of like you're an introvert <laughs> and it's really nerve wracking to be with uh, around so many people and, you know, engaging with so many people. And I was like, the best thing about it is you are the one behind the table, you know, and if you can kind of situate your 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 stuff to where you have like a little nook to kind of bury yourself behind and, and kind of make it, you know, essentially like you look like you're doing busy work, <laughs> you know what I mean? But you're actually just really trying not to freak out and um, overwhelm yourself. So <laughs> uh, if anybody sees me at Scarefair and that's what's happening, that's why. <laughs> but no, yeah, with all these these events starting to crop up and everything, I'm super stoked. I'm really stoked to see what what good things have been happening you know, especially over quarantine and now that we're, 
you know, punching outward of, of quarantine while hopefully most of us are still being safe with the various variants. I'm really excited to see what people have been working on. You know, we, we had a lot of time to kind of get creative, get, get kind of messy with it. Or, uh, you know, for people who didn't want to feel like getting creative. Um, but yeah, we, we I'm, I'm fairly certain there's going to be some really interesting things uh, we're going to see, especially at these events. Pretty sure people have been working really hard. I know everybody at Jaisalman has and everybody within the company of Dark Myth Publications and all of the sister entities that come along with that, as well as outside artists. I know um, over at the Scare Fair, you got all the vendors coming through and all the artists that probably have something very, very nice up their sleeves for everybody at the tables. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard a couple rumors about a couple things. I'm not going to say anything and get my butt in trouble. I've got a couple pieces in the works. Um, I have big goals for myself. I want to do like 25 pieces in the next three months, but I know I'm really not going to be able to do that. It's a piece every but, 10 uh, minutes. Uh, but I do. I, I have I have some good ideas. I have some good ideas and partnering up with somebody to uh, that I'm collaborating with. So there's, there's a lot of really cool things on the horizon, especially with Scarefare. Um, that's kind of... The main focus, I think, for for me in particular, but and I know you've been working on some stuff, not for Scarefare, but... Yeah, I've been working on uh, Penance. So we have Penance coming out this month for the review episode. I've been working on that diligently and something interesting to evolve this... Before you jump into that really quick, can I say something? Because I don't want to directly message Stephanie with this and, uh, like, spoil it for her. But uh, can can I just say the voice actress you got for a particular character within this story? It was... it. Ooh, she's bad, so huh? good. Not she bad. is so good. Like, I genuinely was, was like dumbstruck so i think stephanie's gonna be like hearing this this voice not my voice but this voice <laughs> picked for the main role oh my god it's it's phenomenal yeah she's pretty amazing it's really i think that's really cool like how i don't want to say easy but it's like th- such massive talent just like hiding away you know what i mean it's so cool okay sorry it's go the on. hunger as the hunger it's go on the hunger so i'm working on penance and within my research of um it's not exactly the same timeline but i was trying to find something inspirational for the piece for the music behind it this kind of it got brought to my attention well re-brought to my attention the famous blues musician robert johnson as was reading through his biography i found this to be very very interesting also not to mention that he is the father of the blues so please sit back here we go. Robert Leroy Johnson was an American blues guitarist, singer, and a songwriter. His landmark recordings in 1936 and 1937 display a combination of singing, guitar skills, and songwriting talent that has influenced later generations of musicians. He is now recognized as a master of the blues, particularly the Delta Blues style. As a traveling performer who played mostly on street corners, in juke joints, and at Saturday night dances, Johnson had little commercial success or public recognition in his lifetime. 
He participated in only two recording sessions, one in San Antonio in 1936 and one in Dallas in 1937, that produced 29 distinct songs with 13 surviving alternate takes, recorded by famed Country Music Hall of Fame producer Don Law. These songs recorded at low fidelity and improvised studios were the totality of his recorded output. Most were released as 10-inch, 78 RPM singles from 1937 through 1938, with a few released after his death. Other than these recordings, very little is known of him during his life outside of the small musical circle in the Mississippi Delta, where he spent most of his life. Much of his story has been reconstructed after his death by researchers. Johnson's poorly documented life and death have given rise to much legend. The one most closely associated with his life is that he sold his soul to the devil at a local crossroads to achieve musical success. So I think for most people, you know, suddenly who maybe didn't recognize the name Robert Johnson right away, uh, legend, hearing that, I think automatically probably lets you know exactly who we're talking about because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where what kind of music you grew up listening to. It doesn't matter how sheltered you were, how uh, unsheltered you were. You have probably some semblance of knowing the tale of The Crossroads uh, in some way, shape, or form. There's a whole music festival named The Crossroads. So everybody, I think, you know, has a good idea exactly who we're talking about right they even use it in other tales such all as, the I think, time i think remember and i think it was in road to perdition actually they had the crossroads in that was it road to perdition or and then i believe oh brother where art thou oh no no it was yeah oh brother where art thou the crossroads were in there but also um uh I could picture it too. Uh, it actually, it was Castaway. Remember, they had the crossroads. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny. I was picturing it right as you were saying it. <laughs> but yeah, they. I mean, they. They. they I, I. did a review on the show Paradise City, which is actually a sequel TV series to the film American Satan, which is about uh, a a Faust like character selling. Well, they all kind of sold their soul, but selling a soul to the devil. Uh, granted, they did a whole lot of modernizing and everything. But yeah, it's it's a very transcendent piece of folklore throughout history that we, we've heard many iterations of. And it's very prominent, like without it necessarily being very obvious. And I also even brought up Metalocalypse, you know, <laughs> that, that episode where the whole band, Death Clock, they go searching out the crossroads. <laughs> Uh, I miss Metalocalypse. Anyway, that, yeah, so it's it's a entertaining bit of folklore. And um, I see the appeal of it, of being able to link it to somebody who lived a very uh, uh, undocumented life and in, in thinking how easy it is to attribute this bit of, of historical folklore to somebody you know it's very fascinated very 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 interesting to say the least his music had a small but influential following during his life and in the two decades after his death late 1938 john hammond sought him out for a concert at carnegie hall from spirituals to swing only to discover that johnson had died brunswick records which owned the original recordings was bought by columbia records where Hammond was employed. Musicologist Alan Lomax went to Mississippi in 1941 to record Johnson, also not knowing of his death. 
Law, who then worked for Columbia Records, assembled a collection of Johnson's recordings titled King of the Delta Blues Singers that was released by Columbia in 1961. It is widely credited with finally bringing Johnson's work to a wider audience. The album would become influential, especially on the nascent British blues movement. Eric Clapton called Johnson the most important blues singer that ever lived. Musicians such as Bob Dylan, Keith Richards, and Robert Plant have cited both Johnson's lyrics and musicianship as key influences on their own work. Many of Johnson's songs have been covered over the years, becoming hits for other artists, and his guitar licks and lyrics have been borrowed by many later musicians. Renewed interest in Johnson's work and life led to a burst of scholarship starting in the 1960s. Much of what is known about him was reconstructed by researchers such as Gail Dean Wardlow and Bruce Conforth, especially in their 2019 award-winning biography of Johnson, Up Jump the Devil, The Real Life of Robert Johnson, Chicago Review Press. Two films, the 1991 documentary, The Search for Robert Johnson by John Hammond Jr., and a 1997 documentary, Can't You Hear the Wind Howl, The Life and Music of Robert Johnson, which included constructed scenes with Keb Moe as Johnson, were attempts to document his life and demonstrated, demonstrated the difficulties arising from the scant historical record and conflicting oral accounts. Over the years, the significance of Johnson and his music has been recognized by numerous organizations and publications, including the Rock and Roll, Grammy and Blues, Halls of Fame, and the National Recording Preservation Board. In his early life, Johnson was born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, possibly on May 8, 1911, to Julia Major Dodds and Noah Johnson. Julia was married to Charles Dodds, a relatively prosperous landowner and a few furniture maker, with whom she had ten children. Charles Dobbs had been forced by a lynch mob to leave Hazelhurst following a dispute with white landowners. Julia left Hazelhurst with baby Robert, but in less than two years, she brought the boy to Memphis to live with her husband, who had changed his name to Charles Spencer. Robert spent the next eight to nine years growing up in Memphis and attending the Carnes Avenue Colored School where he received lessons in arithmetic, reading, language, music, geography, and physical exercise. It was in Memphis that he acquired his love for and knowledge of the blues and popular music. His education and urban context placed him apart from most of his contemporary blues musicians. Robert rejoined his mother around 1919 to 1920 after she married an illiterate sharecropper named Will Dusty Willis. They originally settled on a plantation in Lucas Township, in Crittenden County, Arkansas, but soon moved across the Mississippi River to Commerce in the Mississippi Delta near Tunica and Robinsonville. They lived on the Abbey and Leatherman Plantation. Julia's new husband was 24 years her junior. Robert was remembered by some residents as Little Robert Dusty, but he was registered at Tunica's Indian Creek School as Robert Spencer. In the 1920 census, he is listed as Robert Spencer, living in Lucas, Arkansas, with Will and Julie Willis. Robert was at school in 1924 and 1927. The quality of his signature on his marriage certificate suggests that he was relatively well-educated for a boy of his background. A school friend, Willie Coffey, who was interviewed and filmed in later life, recalled that as a youth, Robert was already noted for playing the harmonica and jaw harp. 
Coffey recalled that Robert was absent for long periods, which suggests that he may have been living and studying in Memphis. We know that a lot of Robert Johnson's life has been pieced together with any kind of records and historical records that people can find. And I always, one thing that always fascinates me, because my mom really got into like ancestry, you know, uh, doing like our whole like family lineage and, and seeing all of that. And it always kind of cracks me up because like when you go back and you look at like the census, censuses, sensei, the, the censuses from, you know, like the turn of the century, the first half of, of the, the 20th century, it's really, it's painfully confusing. It can be because you can put, you can slap down pretty much any name we've learned. It's like we have family members who it's like their legal name was so-and-so, but like on the census, they would put down a completely different name because they had gotten remarried, but there was no register. It's, it can get wild. That has really nothing to do with anything. I just, it's, it's fascinating to me how these censuses in particular are recorded throughout history and very, I mean, just fascinating. Now everybody's got computer chips. Yeah. <laughs> no wrong names More here. easily trackable mm. these days. The 5G's got us, guys. Once Julia informed Robert about his biological father, Robert adopted the surname Johnson, using it on the certificate of his marriage to 16-year-old Virginia Travis in February 1929. She died in childbirth shortly after. Surviving relatives of Virginia told the blues researcher Robert Mack McCormick that this was a divine punishment for Robert's decision to sing secular songs known as Selling Your Soul to the Devil. McCormick believed that Johnson himself accepted the phrase as a description of his resolve to abandon the settled life of a husband and a farmer to become a full-time blues musician. Around this time, the blues musician Sunhouse moved to Robinsonville, where his musical partner, Willie Brown, lived. Late in life, House remembered Johnson as a little boy who was a competent harmonica player but an embarrassingly bad guitarist. Soon after Johnson left Robinsonville for the area around Martinsville, close to his birthplace, possibly searching for his natural father. Here he perfected the guitar style of house and learned other styles from Isaiah Ike Zimmerman. Zimmerman was rumored to have learned supernaturally to play guitar by visiting graveyards at midnight. That was the only way to do that. <laughs> hey. When Johnson next appeared in Robinsonville, he seemed to have miraculously acquired a guitar technique. House was interviewed at a time when the legend of Johnson's pact with the devil was well known among blues researchers. He was asked whether he attributed Johnson's technique to this pact, and his equivocal answers have been taken as confirmation. While living in Martinsville, Johnson fathered a child with Virgie Mae Smith. He married Coletta Kraft in May 1931. In 1932, the couple settled for a while in Clarksdale, Mississippi, in the Delta, but Johnson soon left for a career as an itinerant musician, and Coletta died in early 1933. So from 1932 until his death in 1938, Johnson moved frequently between the cities of Memphis and Helena and the smaller towns of the Mississippi Delta and neighboring regions of Mississippi and Arkansas. On occasion, he traveled much further. The blues musician Johnny Shines accompanied him to Chicago, Texas, New York, Canada, Kentucky, and Indiana. Henry Townsend shared a musical engagement with him in St. Louis. 
Uh, so in many places, he stayed with members of his large extended family or with female friends. He did not marry again, but formed some long-term relationships with women to whom he would return periodically. In other places, he stayed with whatever women he was able to seduce at his performance. In each location, Johnson's hosts were largely ignorant of his life elsewhere. He used different names in different places, employing at least eight distinct surnames. Biographers have looked for consistency from musicians, who knew Johnson in different contexts. Shines, who traveled extensively with him, Robert Lockwood Jr., who knew him as his mother's partner, David Honeyboy Edwards, whose cousin Willie May Powell had a relationship with Johnson, from a mass of partial, conflicting, and inconsistent eyewitness accounts, biographers have attempted to summarize Johnson's character. He was well-mannered. He was soft-spoken. He was indecipherable, which are all... <laughs> As for his character, everyone seems to agree that while he was pleasant and outgoing in public, in private life, he was reserved and liked to go on his own way. Musicians who knew Johnson testified that he was a nice guy and fairly average, except, of course, for his musical talent, his weakness for whiskey and women, and his commitment to the road. That, in and of itself, just kind of sets the standard, doesn't it? Yeah. For what we know as rock and roll. That's right. Right? I mean, that that is it. That is it right there. When Johnson arrived in a new town, he would play for tips on street corners or in front of the local barbershop or restaurant. Musical associates have said that in live performances, Johnson often did not focus on his dark and complex original compositions, but instead pleased audiences by performing more well-known pop standards of this day, which I also think is a very common occurrence in a lot of monetized musical... Covers anybody? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot easier to, uh, I think, monetize that you know to this day as well pop standards of the day so and and that it wasn't always blues either that he would do so <laughs> kind of interesting that he was able to kind of you know uh play around i guess anyway so with an ability to pick up tunes at first hearing which that in and of itself is he had no trouble giving his audiences what they wanted and certain of his contemporaries later remarked on his interest in jazz and country music he also had an uncanny ability to establish a rapport with his audience. In every town in which he stopped, he would establish ties to the local community that would serve him well when he passed through again a month or a year later. Shines was 20 when he met Johnson in 1936. He estimated Johnson was maybe a year older than himself. Johnson was actually four years older. Shines is quoted describing Johnson and Samuel Charter's Robert Johnson... Robert was a very friendly person, even though he was sulky at times, you know, and I hung around Robert for quite a while. One evening, he disappeared. He was kind of a peculiar fellow. Robert would be standing up playing someplace, playing like nobody's business. At about that time, it was a hustle with him as well as a pleasure, and money would be coming from all directions. But Robert just pick up and walk off and leave you standing there playing. And you wouldn't see Robert no more, maybe in two or three weeks. So Robert and I, we began journeying off. I was just, matter of fact, tagging along. During this time, Johnson established what would be a relatively long-term relationship with Estella Coleman, a woman about 15 years his senior and the mother of the blues musician Robert Lockwood Jr. 
Johnson reportedly cultivated a woman to look after him in each town he played in. He reputedly asked homely young women living in the country with their families whether he could go home with them. And in most cases, he was accepted until a boyfriend arrived or Johnson was ready to move on. In 1941, Alex Lomax learned from a Mr. Muddy Waters that Johnson had performed in the area around Clarksdale, Mississippi. By 1959, the historian Samuel Charters could add only that Will Shade of the Memphis Jug Band remembered Johnson had once briefly played with him in West Memphis, Arkansas. In the last year of his life, Johnson is believed to have traveled to St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit, and New York City. In 1938, Columbia Records producer John H. Hammond, who owned some of Johnson's records, directed record producer Don Law to seek out Johnson to book him for the first From Spirituals to Swing concert at Carnegie Hall in New York. On learning of Johnson's death, Hammond replaced him with Big Bill Brunzi, but he played two of Johnson's records on the stage. So before Robert Johnson's death in uh, 1938, right? Some of his, the, the he, out of 29 recordings, these were, were his most popular, uh, I well, most popular recorded, to be clarified. <laughs> I believe I'll dust my broom, Sweet, Ho- Sweet Home Chicago, Crossroad Blues, which I'm sure if you pull it up right here now, I'm sure we'll actually probably link it in the description. You will recognize the song uh, if you don't know any of his other uh, recorded songs. The first to be released was Terraplane Blues, uh, as well as Last Fair Deal Gone Down, which sold as many as 10,000 copies. So, um, as I said, he he died in 1938. And we're just going to touch on this because it is, it is a whole thing. Like, you can really get invested in this because his death and the circumstances around it were a little unanswered. On the surface, uh, it's it's really likely that he actually had congenital syphilis. And I believe that was actually an, a notation made on the back of his death certificate. There are also record, not records, but reports. He had actually been poisoned, possibly. Uh, a little bit of a, of a legend, I guess you could say, that he had once said, don't ever knock a, do- a bottle out of my hand. And somebody then offered him a bottle of uh, possible poison. So it's it's hard to say. Again, it's very much worth reading. I don't think we have time to get into all of it. Was most prominent about Robert Johnson's legacy was the folklore that surrounded him and his musical talent. And that is that he met up with the devil at the crossroads and he made a pact to acquire this skill. This phenomenal skill. So according to legend, as a young man living on a plantation in rural Mississippi, Johnson had a tremendous desire to become a great blues musician. One of the legends often told says that Johnson was instructed to take his guitar to a crossroad near Dockery Plantation at midnight. There are claims for at least a dozen other sites as the location of the crossroads. There he was met by a large black man who was the devil This isn't me saying that this is what I'm reading, uh, who took the guitar and tuned it. The devil played a few songs and then returned the guitar to Johnson, giving him mastery of the instrument. The story of a deal with the devil at the crossroads mirrors the legend of Faust. So in exchange for his soul, Johnson was able to create uh, the blues for which he became famous. 
And I mean, there's a lot of, again, tons and tons of various accounts, reports, you know, because apparently it's just a, well, it's a very entertaining piece of folklore. It's also apparently just unfathomable that a black man is talented on his own without having to make a deal with the devil. But <laughs> it's 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 still... It's the, what I feel is it's what you would call the big fish syndrome, right? So you have this very talented musician who is the father of the blues, and he dies one day. So they create this story about him selling his soul to the devil because he was such a great musician instead of the reality of the situation in which these scientists and everybody try to speculate on or did he finally have to go home you know in his own way because his uh, ticket was punched he recorded 29 songs and then you know he had to go well, like I said, I mean, it, it is, it's it's a fascinating bit of, of folklore. And, you know, it's, 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 I don't want to say it's fun, but it's, it's, it's very fascinating. And I think it's, it's easy to be attracted to that, that kind of wild, outrageous story. And, you know, taking just the concept of the origins of the blues and how, you know, because of, of culture and racism and all of those wonderful things that really aren't any different today. Uh, but back in the 1920s and 30s, I think it was a lot more, it was easier to attribute this man's like, I can't even think of the right word for it, just like like unreal talent, un matched talent as something that is essentially God-given, right? So I think it's a little bit easier to kind of paint him. And again, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's definitely a rabbit hole you can get into into uh, understanding more about that whole bit of folklore. So, and I'm probably coming off as really ignorant, so I'm going to shut up now <laughs> about that. Um, and, and All you got to do is tune that, tune that guitar to Dad Fan. He's going to be just fine. <laughs> no, it's interesting to notate, too, um, about the blues is because in music, there's, I think it was like the 16th century or something, ancient monks, they have a certain chord progression that's actually the devil's note which is i think it's the augmented fourth so um they would not use that note which would be the augmented fourth so they would they would hire or they wouldn't hire but they would have their musicians sit there and erase that augmented fourth out of scores and music and totally because they believe that if you played that augmented fourth you would raise the devil so Interestingly enough, if you listen to his blues guitar, he mostly uses augmented force. As that's he's playing, really interesting. As he's playing across the the, uh, the fretboard. That's very exciting information. That's really cool. Yeah, so they would not let anybody in the medieval times use that augmented fourth. That's pretty. That's pretty fascinating. Honestly, absolutely. I think that you know is it's so. F- like wild to really start when you start like understanding and and even like starting to comprehend situations like (laughs) you know and such a quick turnaround from the the difference between ragtime and blues blues was the sound of the people and 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 everything that was going on you know through plantations and everything like that back in those days that 
the banjo and the parlor guitar because that was his main, you know, the, the Dreadnought guitar wasn't made yet. It, well, about 1916, I believe, Martin started playing around with a design for the Dreadnought. But the parlor guitar was the guitar of the blues originally, you know, because that's what was around for for making music. That and the banjo. Anything that you could dance and play to was king. And that's where you have the styles of blues and, and rock and roll and everything like that, you know. So fun fact, really quick, though. Pretty interesting that Trixie Smith, her 1922 blues ballad, My Man Rocks Me, with one steady roll, catches the term in transition, its meaning covering both sex and dancing, and thereby music. But no mention of boats whatsoever, which was the original meaning of rock and roll because rocking and rolling on the sea uh <laughs> by the time dj Allen freed started using the term in the 1950s to describe the type of hyped up country music infused with the primal urgency of rhythm and blues the sexual component had been dialed down enough that it simply became an acceptable term for dancing had he tried to promote a rock and roll party a couple of decades earlier it would have caused an outrage so that's a little fun information for your brains. Uh, I really enjoy doing episodes like this where it is just informational bouts. And I mean, you also need to remember too, a lot of Robert Johnson, again, I think we can't say it enough how um, theoretical a lot of his life is because it is so unrecorded. And so I think a lot of documentarians, you know, they've done their best to put pieces together, but Ultimately, we don't know. We know the man was uh, a brilliant musician. We know he died very young. I think we could, you know, say he was uh, a ladies' man. <laughs> he keeps winning awards to this very day. So I think it's it's really fascinating, though, to kind of jump into these wormholes of people who, you know, are so synonymous with very important factors of our world today and what we know and understand as. And I mean, the Delta Blues in and of itself, that entire genre of music is the core of what we know as rock and roll today. You know what I mean? And and I don't think we could have the music that we have today without any kind of registration of the blues, especially the Delta Blues, um, back in the day because... Constant evolution. We had, you know, I mean, back in the, the 50s and 60s, we had Muddy Waters, we had Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith. Oh my God, there's so, so many. And uh, uh, Howlin' Wolf. I mean, it's just, it's so intertwined with music as we know it today. It's just, it's really fascinating to learn more about it and to learn about you know you know for you it started as trying to understand a style of music that ultimately you you had to go down this this rabbit hole of <laughs> learning who the father of the blues is you know so that's that's really fun I think with just learning Absolutely. everything and, and especially when you take up a new craft Right. And, and it's like you there has to be that education. Right. And that's the same with uh, anything. I think this is a really fun episode. And I think I think we're going to push to do more like it. I think these are actually very important 
subjects, and I think they're very interesting. So, uh, you can find us at www.theworldofmyth.com on Facebook and Twitter, the uh, the World of Myth Bits podcast, and on the World of Myth magazine, and on Instagram at the World of Myth Bits. Uh, don't forget to check out Myth Mart. We should be having a shirt. For the World of Myth Bits podcast popping up there pretty soon. I really enjoyed designing it. I think it's a really cute shirt. Thank you for listening. I'm going to go draw. Until next time. Mm-hmm.